forum for frank talk about what people do for a living. Works Do. Hello and welcome to Works Do. It's August 24th, 2014, and this is episode number 85. I'm Kate Gase Walton. I'm the editor of Work Stew, an online collection of essays and interviews in which people ponder their work lives. In this episode, I speak with Leah Lax, a writer whose work, Finding Her Own Voice, has taken a particularly interesting path. Leah spent 30 years in the Hasidic community. When she introduced herself to me in an email, she wrote, I spent 30 years as a covered woman. I had seven kids in 10 years. Oh, and I'm a lesbian, my secret all those years. Leah spoke to me from her home in Texas. Here's the interview. I'm speaking this morning with Leah Lax. And Leah, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me. A pleasure. I wanted to start by talking actually about your life as as a writer. For for most writers, the work at hand is to find one's voice, and your path, um, you know, for that task has taken a particularly um, interesting, you know, set of twists and turns. Maybe you can just talk about about that. Where did you uh, start your life and, and where are you now? I was born in Dallas, Texas to a 60s liberal Jewish secular family. And my mother was a really, really terrific, driven professional artist. Um, so in a way, you could say I was schooled from the beginning to find my voice because she uh, really... I think her primary language was color and she spoke English as a second language Uh, and that helped. And yet, and yet I think that was the very situation that rocketed me right into the fundamentalist world that I dove into in adolescence. And I've read a little bit about that. Um, You, uh, went uh, to, I think it was to visit a Hasidic family, and there was something about uh, the life in the law that at that time was very appealing to you. There was a, a line in something you wrote that really leapt out to me. You wrote that that life in the law looked to me like a prayer in motion, like living poetry. Can you talk a little bit about what the appeal of um, the Hasidic life was to you at that time? And you were a teenager, right? Quite young. I was. I was fifteen, or I was fifteen when I first met them. But that point that you're describing, I was sixteen. Um, I think that you know I can say that our home life was chaotic, and um, parents were absent a lot. There, the parenting style in general in those years was often without much structure in the home, and um, we, uh, but mine particularly so, and. I found this very traditional home life where mothers stayed home and they were mothers and fathers were fathers and there was structure and um, that was reliable and predictable. And I found it all very soothing and coupled with the um, sort of hippie notion that was so deep in us teens um, when, you know, early 70s when um, 
the hippie anti-materialism went mainstream and every middle-class kid was a wannabe hippie. Um, the, the promises of the anti-material, you know, not the, the, the anti-materialism translated right into this mm-hmm. spiritual notion perfectly. Um, and the promises of the sublime. To me, um, looking back, I can say that God was um, presented to me like this ever-present, benign parent. Mm. Um, and I didn't understand then why it was so incredibly appealing. But I can say also as um, a, a, a budding lesbian that... Um, the fundamentalist world is incredibly homoerotic because it's so strictly gender divided and the men are affectionate with one another all the time. They're very close and as are the women, Mm. um, you know, men dance with men, women dance with women. You see women massaging each other's shoulders in the synagogue. You see men embrace each other and kiss each other. And I thought this was very freeing Mm. and amazing. Mm. Um, I never looked at myself and said, well, why does this appeal to you? Not at that point. Right. So you, you entered into an arranged marriage, right? At, was it, how old were you then? Um, I, uh, yeah, that's what Hasidic world does. They basically mm-hmm. tell the girls, you can have all this wonderful, sublime, you know, beautiful, mystical teachings that we have, uh, but you're a girl, so you get it by being married and having children, not by studying these incredible texts and, and, prayer and meditation but you know this is your prayer and I uh, entered an arranged marriage I was engaged at 18 and my wedding was a month after my 19th birthday and to a man I didn't know do you remember at the time um, did you have any doubts or did it feel so wholly the right path for you at the time um, you know the Shakespearean notion of um uh, protesting too much. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's what I was doing to myself constantly. Mm-hmm. So I, I was working very hard at squelching any doubts, mm-hmm. although I had them. I very much had them. You did. But you lived for 30 years um, in in that environment. You had seven children. And another thing that, that uh, really struck me in your writing is you wrote that at the time you didn't actually feel invisible or, or silent or erased. Um, and you wrote that you felt you really mattered. Can you talk a little bit about that? Because I don't think that's at all well understood um, from the perspective of, say, an outsider like myself. Well, first I want to say that birth control was forbidden. So those seven children were born over a 10-year span. And I was in this strictly gender-divided home. I was it. And I was rocketed into more than full-time work with the seven most precious people in my universe. So they were everything. And home life was everything. But that was typical in that world. And um, since the home life life is um, so complex and big and noisy, and uh, 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 that is the center where the kids are trained in the religion and how to function in in this little you know, microcosm society, the home life is, is a pulse beat. It's venerated. It's loved. And it all, it all swirls around the women. Women have, <clears throat> with you know, behind closed doors in their home are often very strong voices. They're often strong and dominant voices. Yeah. Um, and people can forget that how 
the men particularly can forget how much that is shut down once the women step over the threshold and are out in the world, out on the street. But in our um, in our public gatherings, of course, only men took the podium, only men spoke, um, and in the synagogue as well. You know, we we prayed behind a partition, and we were not allowed to sing the prayers. We whispered them. Um, to the point that when my father died, I couldn't say the Kaddish. I wasn't allowed to say the Kaddish uh, prayer for the mourner. My husband said it for me, and he didn't know my father. Mm. And I would go to the synagogue and watch through the partition and hold my breath and wait for the moment when he stood up to honor my father's memory mm. and say that prayer. Mm. I didn't even dare whisper it along with him. So you you then did arrive at a time where uh, you wrote that you you had come to feel invisible because you couldn't say, uh, you said you couldn't say a a simple defiant I am. Can you talk about that moment? And was it a a moment or was it something that evolved slowly over time? Well, we convinced ourselves, you know, we scoffed at the outside world that, you know, called us women invisible because, you know, we wore, uh, we covered ourselves with long sleeves and long skirts and, the hair of our head wasn't allowed to be shown, so we kept our head covers with scarves and wigs. And we, but you know, within the community, we were told constantly that the women were venerated, um, also as models of self-sacrifice, which was the ultimate in religiosity. Mm. Um, we didn't, you know, and as I said, because of that importance, uh, that put, being put on a pedestal, and because of the strength and power we had in the home, we didn't think we were invisible. Um, we, we, we felt noble, um, because we submitted ourselves to, to the law, um, and because we dedicated our lives to others, to children and to those around us constantly. But as women, we did very little for our own health, very little. Mm. And, um, uh, there's a lot of health issues among the women in the Hasidic community. Mm. They're stressed and tired and overweight, et cetera. Um, but two things happen. One, I'm going to, I'm going to say that wasn't in that article that you're referencing that was in salon.com last week. Mm. Um, I became pregnant one too many times Mm. and I became pregnant, oh, maybe six weeks after a premature birth Mm. that was premature because I had suffered, um, uh, asthma, Mm. stress-related asthma through that, uh, entire pregnancy. And, I hadn't recovered and my baby hadn't recovered. I'm sorry, it wasn't six weeks. It was more like three months after. It was just six weeks after we got him home from the hospital. Mm. Um, And I had an immediate visceral reaction of, this is not a baby. This is like a cancer. I must get this out of my body or I will die. Mm. And there was no logic to it. I had asthma, not a heart condition. Mm. And it didn't matter. And it took time for me to acknowledge to myself that that I will die conviction was that my soul will die even if I physically survive. I'll be a shell. Mm. I can't even, won't even be able to mother my other children. Mm. And I want to say that the previous child was 13 months old mm. at that point. I had seven kids in the house under 10. The two youngest were 13 months old and a three-month-old premature child. And I was pregnant. Mm. And I became absolutely driven so I did the unthinkable. I put myself first. I did the unthinkable. I went to the doctor and said, I can't do this unless my husband and a rabbi agree. 
I still didn't think I owned my body because I'd been taught that only that God owns my body, not me. Mm. And that the law could, had to tell me if I could do it. But I knew that I could get agreement if a doctor told them it's life and death. That was the only circumstance. So I went to a doctor and manipulated the law, essentially. Told her what to tell the rabbi mm. and secure their support. But then the rabbi said, no one's allowed to know about this. And I had an abortion. Mm-hmm. This is my first act of, I own my life, my body. I must rest control because it is actually a matter of my survival. Mm-hmm. And it changed me. It changed me completely. Mm. Absolutely galvanizing. But there was that and the, you know, looking in the mirror and saying eventually after that, I'm a lesbian saying that word and then realizing that I really was invisible to the uh, women around me, my friends who are friends and family to my community because I was so hidden mm-hmm. that this essential part of me was so hidden. So what did you do then once you, once you realized that, once you said that to yourself? The truth is that at first I said nothing um, because and this is an argument I had with uh, an editor about my memoir. Um, a novel has a series of scenes where, the, and a, any good story, mm-hmm. um, where the person has a realization and they, they move, they act, they make a change. Mm. And then there's another realization. Again, they move, they act, they make a change, so it ratchets up the tension until there's this great aha you know, and everything changes. And that's not what a woman's life is in fundamentalist world. Not when your whole life is about don't listen to your inner voice. Don't take care of yourself. Mm. Don't trust your impulses. That's what we were taught. So at first I did nothing. Um, and I had to have the same realization again and again. So it was unbearable. Mm. So even after that, it took uh, years Till I left, but that was the beginning of the change. Yeah. Well, um, I cannot wait to read your book, and I'm thinking that probably <laughs> what I should do is um, stop drawing your book out of you and, <laughs> and tell everybody else to read it too. It really, um, it really sounds terrific, and I'm looking forward to it. And I do appreciate your giving us a, a glimpse into it. Um, when does it come well, out? Um, I have one offer from one publisher. I'm waiting till after Labor Day to hear back from another who's advanced it to, you know, to final stages, but hasn't made an offer. So I don't know who's going to bring it out yet, but it will be out in 2015. It'll be called Uncovered by Laylax. That wraps up the interview for today. Thanks again very much to my guest, Leia Lax. Thanks to Chris Walton of Visual Story Productions for editing this episode. Thanks also to everyone who's written an essay for Work Stew. And finally, thanks very much to you for listening today. The next episode will be released in two weeks, and I hope you'll check it out. In the meantime, please let me know what you thought of the interview by sending an email to kate at workstew.com, by posting a comment to the Work Stew website, or by writing a review for iTunes. Thanks again, and bye for now. <laughs>